Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Black on Black Education podcast. Today, you're going to be listening to a conversation between myself, Eva Loren Jean Charles, and Miss Shauna Brown. We had an incredible conversation about school culture, student involvement, parent involvement, and why we need to be supporting our babies holistically, supporting these kids holistically. And that was my favorite part of the conversation. So please sit back, relax, grab a snack and enjoy the next 35 minutes of conversation about how we support these kids, especially in the times that we are currently living. Um, Comment, like, share and let us know what you learned and how much you enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the next episode of the Black on Black Education podcast. So happy to have you here. As always, I'm going to give you, the guest, the opportunity to introduce yourself to the listeners. Thank you. Um, Hello, everyone. My name is Shauna Brown. Um, I have been in education for a little over 15 years now. Um, I started out doing my student teaching experience in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where I went to undergrad at Temple University. Um, which was a wonderful experience. Um, I then moved on and went to um, New York, and I taught in Brooklyn, New York, um, and I attended Columbia University for my graduate studies, which was also wonderful. Um, After leaving New York, I came to Connecticut, where I started teaching middle school. I've taught um, mathematics, science, literacy, um, history, civics um, to high school, And I also worked in Connecticut as an instructional coach for um, the Department of English Language Learners, as well as a program coordinator, consultant, um, assistant principal, and acting principal. So I've done a lot of things in education. All of them have been really great learning experiences um, within a short span of time, relatively short span of time. Um, And yes, I'm, I'm happy to be here. So thank you for having me. Awesome. We're happy to have you. You're a jack of all trades. I love it. Um, And so let's talk, let's dig right in. Let's talk a little bit about your role as an educator. How did you get there? Why did you stay? Because we know we have a lot of um, turnover rates in education. So kind of give us a little rundown of like what brought you into this work and why you, why you're still in it. Sure. So I actually, um, when I was age three is when I decided I wanted to be an educator. At that time, at three years old, I used to line up my little dolls and my little stuffed animals and pretend to teach them, take attendance, like do all of that stuff. I just always, 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 um, it just has always been in me. I always wanted to be a teacher. When I was 12, I started like a, a babysitting club and a babysitting business so I could work with kids that way. I taught um, church school when I was 16. And so I've always kind of like been on this path um, towards education and teaching. And it's just always been kind of part of me and in me. Um, one of the things that actually inspired me to be the type of teacher I wanted to be, though, mm-hmm. is um, so growing up um, on hip hop, basically, mm-hmm. and hearing a lot of the, the conscious um, MCs, I wanted to bring that type of energy to the classroom. Mm-hmm. So I knew I wanted to be a teacher. And then hip hop inspired me to be the type of teacher I wanted to, to be. I wanted to bring that knowledge of self into students and to just um, really encourage students to learn, especially Black students, to learn about their history and, and who we are as a people. So. Absolutely. I love that. And it's so funny you say that because I remember like going to the Dollar Tree and begging my mom for the whole teacher section that had to get 
<laughs> and then somewhere in the middle, I was like, no education. I don't know how teachers do it. Like mm-hmm. I should have known. I babysat my whole life. I'm the oldest mm-hmm. or like, I've just always had that, that same spirit that you talked about, but I kind yep. of rejected it yep. and, you, and you went into it. And then, I mean, <laughs> all the things that we want in life come back around. Yep. And so, right. you're, but you're not only a teacher, you're also a parent. Right. And yes. so talk a little bit about being a parent of a black child and what that means for you and, and kind of your relationship to your, your child's school. And then from the standpoint of an educator, what the, the role of a parent um, should be in the classroom. Wow. Yeah. That's a loaded question. So yeah. <laughs> as an educator who was also, who was also a parent, um, it's almost as if I can't, I can never really turn off the educator within me. Mm-hmm. So as being a parent who also loves education and is kind of just in love with the profession altogether and in love with child development, I have always, it's been like, it's been deeper learning for me. It's been almost like the best education that I can receive as an educator has been through raising a child. Mm. And so just being able to see everything that, um, you know, I learned about, about child development before becoming an educator everything that I've learned about in theory with how children develop, I've been able to kind of see for myself and um, to see firsthand really the the nuances and intricacies of children. Um, Also just watching, like hearing from him about his experiences in school, starting from preschool um, and he's now in middle school. So preschool through now, has been very, he, he has some, I find that children in general have the best insights. And so what he's able to tell me about his schooling experience has helped to inform me as a professional. And it also helped to inform me as to how I can best advocate for students and for my own child. Mm, beautiful. And so, yeah, so it's, it's been great. Um, a lot of times, so I've seen that though, like, with a lot of his teachers growing up, I, I would, I'm hesitant to tell them that I'm an educator because I want to see how mm-hmm. they're going to treat me as just an average parent who does not know much about education or who is not in the field. Yeah. And so it usually comes out at some point, they usually find out, but I, I want to see how schools treat me coming in as a black woman um, who's a parent, not knowing that I've been an administrator and I work for the State Department of Education and all that stuff. Um, just how are you going to treat me as a regular parent coming in the door? Mm. So that's been interesting too. And I have seen differences with how um, either his principals or teachers have treated me based on whether or not they knew I was in education. Mm. Mm. And so it's also been interesting that I've had to advocate a lot for um, for what I know is, is kind of best for him based on my own experience in education. Mm-hmm. And I've seen a lot of areas where um, if I did not know, if I wasn't familiar with the school system, he could have slid through the cracks in certain areas. Mm-hmm. But because I knew what to ask for and I knew, you know, for example, if you take this math class in sixth grade, where will you be in eighth grade or ninth grade or high school? I was able to kind of navigate that because I had the experience working in high schools and middle schools, knowing how, you know, that whole system is set up and I was able to advocate. But if I didn't know, um, I probably would not have been able to advocate the same way. 
Absolutely. And so that kind of brings me into my next question of this idea about parent involvement in school, right? And I think you brought up some key points of you had insider insight, right? You were an educator, you know how the things work. And so what is your advice to administrations of schools or just other educators in general about cultivating relationship with parents and Mm -hmm. the importance of relationship with parents? And then just kind of like really digging into that piece of, I mean, this, this trope, this ideology around parents from low-income communities and not wanting to, and not wanting to be a part of their kids' education and not advocating for their kids and this sort of ideology around how parents in low-income communities experience education and how they advocate for their kids. Um, Mm -hmm. Just what, just in and around that conversation, what advice do you have for teachers and just what do you want to break about that misconception? So I would say, so number one, um, teachers, administrators have to keep in mind that every single parent sends the best that they have and their most precious gift into the school building to be educated. And we trust that teachers and administrators are going to have the best interests of our children at heart. So that's number one. So there's, I know sometimes there's a misconception that, you know, parents are involved if they're not at the school every day, or if they're not coming to parent-teacher conferences, but know that every parent sends their very best child to the school each day, Hmm. um, and their most precious gift. I would stress, though, that communication is key um, from both administrators as well as teachers, and it has to be um, consistent communication, not just communication when it comes time for report cards or at the end of the year or when something's going wrong. Um, Those relationships have to be developed early on in the school year. So starting from, even before school starts, you can start making, you know, formal relationships with parents. Mm -hmm. Um, And and just making sure that for every, so there, there should be more positive communication than negative. When you're communicating positively with parents, that's like putting money in the bank. So that if you do have to call about, um, something that's more negative or something that is um concerning you 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 already built that relationship and you've already called um and and, and built the positive relationship around the positive things about that child and so i find that parents um will be less defensive if you have already built that relationship up um and will trust you more as an educator yeah. they'll trust that you have the best interest of their child at heart and so if you're calling, you're not picking on them, you're not trying to get them in trouble, you're not just being, you know, quote, unquote, petty, but you're actually calling because, you know, you have this child's best interest at heart and you want to work together to make sure that um, the child is, is being successful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so my next question kind of comes on the back of that, right? So, so what your students, I think that there's just a large misconception about students in general. Um, mm-hmm. I just got off the phone kind of talking about the fact that we try to create solutions for education without even talking to kids. Um, and so what do you want the world to know about your students um, and students like them? And what, what, and what should the mainstream world know, more specifically the, the ones who are trying and want to be a part of educating them? Oh, I love this question also. So first, so students want to be seen, they want to be heard, 
um, students notice and see everything, students are like the best researchers. So mm -hmm. things that teachers don't even know about themselves, kids can see it. Mm. And they can see through if you're being genuine or not. They can tell if you're frustrated or not. Um, sometimes they, they push you just to test to see if you're going to be there for them and stay there with them. Mm. Um, but kids, they, they want to be seen and heard. They want to be, they want to be valued. They want to, um, they want the world to know that what they think and feel matters. They don't want to feel invisible. Um, they care about others perceptions of them also, especially at the middle school level and um, high school level. They don't want to be called out or embarrassed. If they are called out or embarrassed, they're going to many times save face. Mm. And so kids want the same respect that teachers want from youth. So mm -hmm. if you're expecting um, the children to respect you, you got to show that same respect. Um, and, you know, they just, they want to be seen and valued as humans, really. That's what it really comes down to. They want to be humanized. They want you want to be seen, and, and they want to be respected in the same way that um, adults want the respect. Absolutely. And so, just kind of with that that thought in mind, as we continue through the rest of our conversation, um, let's talk for a second about Teach for the Culture um, and your social media platform and what you use it for um, and why you started it. Sure. So I actually, I started Teach, Teach for the Culture about two years ago. Um, I started one as just a way to connect with other educators, especially um, educators of color. Um, and it, I started it as a way also to kind of, so I, all right, let me back up for a minute. I am always like, I love education so much. Like I am always either reading about education talking about it, learning, reading, like everything I own, every, almost everything I view in the world, I then view through the lens of an educator as, or I tie it to education somehow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it, it kind of started as an outlet just for me to be able to um, share ideas, share thoughts while building community. Mm -hmm. um, and then it kind of, I would say after, after a few months, I decided I wanted to make it into something bigger than just the blog. Yeah. And so I started um, first the, the clothing line, the apparel line, Teach for the Culture. Um, and then full on kind of more consulting and more programming around um, different things with the education. Um, social justice has always been at my core. Um, and so a lot of my content on Teach for the Culture focuses around social justice, racial justice, black education. And so that's, that's something that's always been a part of me, I would say since I was in middle school or high school. And so, yeah, so Teach for the Culture kind of just started as like a, a way for me to share content, share my feelings, share my thoughts. And then I've really grown it into more of a community as well as an apparel line and just, um, you know, an all around organization. Yeah. And so I, I it became an LLC um, about a year and a half ago. All right. Beautiful. Love it. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we're talking about culture, right, um, mm -hmm. what part does culture have to play in students and student success and then ultimately like school success? Mm. 
So culture is in everything that we do. Um, it's in everything that we, both the visible parts and the invisible parts. Um, I think sometimes because it can be invisible to some who are kind of deeply embedded in it or some who are not as familiar with other cultures, mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it, it's, it's a way to connect everything they're learning to who they are as people, to who we are. And so I think culture plays a huge part in um, helping students to kind of have a deeper and more personal connection to the content. And that leads to more, to, to better and more sustained learning. And so they're able to kind of apply what they're learning to their lives. Um, and they're able to see the connections and able to access um, the content at a, at a deeper level once, yeah. once we tie that culture into it. Absolutely. So, um, and I also just want to add that, so teach for the culture, it can be, I, I look at it in, in a couple different ways. When I say teach for the culture, it can be for the culture of the students but also for the culture, meaning for your history, your culture, the ancestors. I look at it as you are not just teaching for um, yourself or for the people of this generation, but for everyone who came before you, that fought for you, that made it possible for us to be here in this moment. That's the culture. Like for everything we've been through, fighting for education for the last 300 years and for the last 400 years being in this country, um, all of that is for the culture. Like we, we've never, we have not yet been where we need to be in education because of the way the system has been designed, a system that was never even designed for us, whereas one point in our history, we weren't even allowed to learn how to read. So when I say teach for the culture, it's for, for all of that. It's like bringing us to a, to a new level and doing it not just for the people um, that are here now, but for people who came before us and for future generations. So. Mm. That's kind of my idea of teacher of the culture, along with just the, you know, the, the pedagogical aspects of it. It's more about the, the historical as well and what yeah. we're doing as a people. Yeah. And so thinking about student success, thinking about what it is that schools are supposed to be doing um, to get students ready for the world after they graduate. I don't like saying college readiness. Everybody's not going mm -hmm. to college. Let's get them ready for the world um, after after they, they graduate from their school. And so what do you feel as an educator, but also as a parent needs to needs to continue to happen that or what's not happening in in the majority of public education schools and charters? Y'all are not off the hook either. Um, <laughs> what needs to happen in order to kind of um, really prepare students for the world that's coming after them and specifically through the social justice lens um considering kind of the the social climate that we're currently in mm -hmm. um that's also a great i love your questions Eva. by the way <laughs> some great deep questions yeah. um so some of the things so so right now we're preparing students for a world that does not currently exist the education that i received years ago did not prepare me for where we are today and the education that many of our students and many of our schools are receiving right now is not going to prepare them for um where life will be 10 years from now five years from now um 
or you know, much less 20 years from now. So I think it's, it's much less, yes, the content is important, but in this day and age, content alone is not what um, makes your education. You can find content anywhere. Yeah. A student can go online and, and find everything that a teacher wants to teach, whatever's in the textbook, all that stuff is online at their fingertips. They can look that up in five minutes compared to spending 10 months in the classroom learning about that same thing. So I think it's a lot more about um, teaching the skills they'll need to critically analyze, to critically think. Um, I think creativity has to be a huge part of it. I think that's been kind of left out in a lot of our schools that have focused more heavily on testing. They have um, neglected the creativity part. And the creativity is, is going to be, the creativity along with the, the innovation and the, and the critical thinking and all of that, that's gonna be what helps students of today prepare for tomorrow. Mm. Um, yeah, and you know, in terms of whatever they wanna do. You have yeah. to be able to think, you have to be able to be creative, you have to be able to problem solve. I think those are the skills that we really need to be focused on as opposed to just memorizing content, just getting students ready to take tests that stuff will not matter a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. And we can even see with, you know, what we're going through with this pandemic. Yeah. Like, is, is what you're learning in that, in your history book or um, just like old science content helping? No, you have to know how to like problem solve and really think and examine and study and research and come up with new solutions to problems that had not existed before. This is all unprecedented. You have to be able to prepare students to, deal with things that will be unprecedented in the future. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. And I think like in the past, right, there has been a fallback plan for a lot of people, right? You could leave school and work at a Abercrombie and kind of make that work. In five years, there won't be anyone working at Abercrombie, right? right. If there's even an Abercrombie physical store anymore. Exactly. Um, and so we have to like, exactly like you said, you have to prepare them for the world that doesn't exist yet. But that is tremendously going to change the landscape of what students and people can do as jobs, right? Absolutely. To the point where in seven years, we won't have taxi drivers. We will have right. cars that drive themselves that you right. hop in and hop out of. And so these kind of, these, I, I hate saying low skill or anything like that because everybody mm -hmm. has skill, everybody uses what they need to get what they, to get what they need. Um, mm -hmm. But these jobs that don't require a lot of intellectual labor, right? They are not going to be available to folks anymore. Right. We keep doing education the way that it was created to make people ready to work in factories. Well, we're going right. to be in a lot of trouble. And so exactly. we we're at this pinnacle where things just have to change. There just is no other option. And so um, voices like yours are just so incredible so that we can have a conversation about like, we're not, we can't just support students in how they learn about Christopher Columbus. Right. We have to support students in figuring out how they learn about how to navigate the world. Absolutely. Um, and, and, I, and I absolutely love the way you kind of brought that in. Well and you. so I can't believe we've just like run through my questions like this. But <laughs> just to kind of round out the conversation, like how do you reimagine the education system to support students, to support the students that you serve, to support the students um, that are on the margins, right? We have we have black students we have the intersections of so many different identities lgbtq students who are black who are disabled we have just have so much and unfortunately we always talk about education with this 
quote unquote average. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so what in your head as you're reimagining, cause I don't, I'm not, I'm done with reform. I'm not talking about That's that. right. We're reimagining, we're recreating. And so when we're reimagining yep. and recreating an education system, what does it look like for students who are on the margins? Because they haven't been receiving the education that they need with exactly. the system that we've had for a hundred years. Exactly. Um, so as we recreate and redevelop, yeah, we want that creativity and that innovation part a hundred percent in there, but how do we socially and emotionally support um, the students who haven't had that for a really long time? Mm. Wow. Hmm. I asked big questions. Another, yeah, I, lo- I love your questions because they make me think. I'm, uh, you know, when I think about just reimagining or, like you said, I'm, I'm with you on, I'm done with like the reform. Like, it's reform to me is trying to fit. Um, you know, new ways of thinking into like an old structure and that doesn't work. Like, I think I made the analogy a few weeks ago. It's kind of like, you know, blowing bubbles into a well and calling it a jacuzzi. Is it a jacuzzi now? No, it's still a well. (laughs) You can't just add something to it and expect it to be a different thing. Yeah. So I'm all about like rebuilding, honestly. Um, I don't see... I think just the way that the systems are and the way the structures within education are set up right now and the way they have always been set up and not working for our kids, we have to almost like just dismantle and and, and rebuild um, with our kids in mind and at the center. And I think you hit a good point when you talked about um, like how do we do that for the social and emotional wellness of students, which is, is critical. Um, I think one is, is first of all, we have to include their voices, like the student voices. Um, I think a lot of times these conversations are coming from either policymakers or the educators, the adults, but student voices have to be at the table and all this, they have the most insights about it. Um, they can tell us, what they need as opposed to just adults telling them what they need. Um, and so in rebuilding and in, in revamping and abolishing, like student voices have to be there and at the center. Um, in terms of social emotional supports, again, I think building a system that is intended to support um, students on a more individualized level has to be a part of it. Um, I was reading a study the other day that said that in some, there were some high school right now that have one counselor to every 1,000 students or one counselor to 2,000 students. That is just not, that's just malpractice, honestly. It's like educational malpractice. Um, so we have to, to, to build a system where the ratio for, of, of social emotional supports to students is, is, almost as great or greater than the ratio as like students to teachers right now. So student teachers like one to 15, it should be at least that at the minimum um, with social emotional supports. Um, I think we also have to um, teacher training around or teacher um, and staff educator development around this issue has to be a part of it as well. Um, Because right now just this understanding what some of the social and emotional needs are and how to best support students that has to be a part of it. Teachers can no longer go into the schools 
just saying, okay, I'm going to teach maths. I'm going to teach history. You have to go to teach youth, to teach children. And that includes knowing how to support them um, in terms of social and emotional um, wellness and well-being. So those are just a few. Mm -hmm. I would say, um, you know, supporting teachers have to be part of it, um, including the voice of children, making sure that more supports are in place and doing that intentionally as opposed to just adding them after or... Yes. You know, we have to prioritize it. Absolutely. Make it a priority. Absolutely. And, and so, and build it with that in mind. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so everyone <laughs> listen to this episode and then we fixed it. <laughs> you know? um, and so to close out, we always do this. I give you the opportunity to become the interviewer and I become the interviewee mm-hmm. and you can ask me any questions about black on black education, about myself, um, whatever you want. Great. So what inspired you to actually start um, Black and Black Education? Yeah, I've like, I feel like I get this question a lot and I'm always just kind of, I, ha- I find a different way to answer it because it's just so many different things that kind of mm-hmm. really pushed me to start this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the biggest reason for me was just the, the idea that um, if there can be Black on Black crime, there can be Black on Black education, right? Mm-hmm. And if it, and, and although we know that Black on Black crime is just this, I mean, ridiculous sentiment from the standpoint of the fact that then there has to be white on white crime, which no one ever says ever. So clearly there's a a racial charge when it comes to black Mm -hmm. on black crime. But it really just comes down to the fact that I had three black educators, maybe two, two or three black educators my entire um, K through 12, like through the K through 12. And then I had maybe two or three black professors going to a minority serving institution in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at this from a standpoint of there's just a huge problem, right? There's a gap in how many educators of color that we have that can understand um, a child's lived experience from their own lived experience. And so not Mm -hmm. they're exactly the same, but we can say that when you grow up in a black body, there are parallels that you find most of the time with other people. Mm -hmm. Um, So Black and Black Education started as a podcast and a social media platform. And I wanted people to have the opportunity to kind of come on and talk and have conversations. And it's just been growing and growing and growing as something Mm -hmm. that Similar to Teach for the Culture, we have plans to kind of move into um, the space of consulting, the space of just opening up and creating conversation, but on a wider scale. Um, mm-hmm. In the beginning, we did focus really heavily on um, Black education for Black folks, but then we started mm-hmm. to realize that the problem is, is that what is it, 80% of teachers are white? Um, and so we have to figure out a way to bring them into this conversation because mm-hmm if you're in service of black students, you need to understand black students. Mm -hmm. And there is no monolithic way of understanding them. So you need to understand how you get to understand the individual students Mm -hmm. that you have in your classroom. And so um, we're starting with the conference as one of our biggest things that we're gonna have done that you're an incredible uh, panelist on, which we are so excited. So if anyone wants to hear more, get your tickets for the Black Education Conference. But, we just want to create space and create space for conversation. And then as we move into the future, really just um, doing everything and anything to be in support of black students until we see awesome. the systems level change that is necessary. How would you say that you are um, examining kind of the intersections within black people or mm. within black 
black and you know within black within blackness or being black and black on black ed yeah how are you also kind of elevating the intersections and has that evolved since you began your work in black and black ed or kind of where are you with that right now absolutely um i love that question i think we started from a like i can only think about my blackness from my standpoint so i kind of thought about it from that same lens and had to start to understand like i didn't grow up in an inner city i lived in the suburbs my whole life so kind of thinking about what experiences folks have had as being a black person who goes to a predominantly black school i've never had that experience so i don't understand it um and then a lot of black people who've gone to predominantly black schools don't understand the feeling of being a black person that goes to a predominantly white school. So yep. figuring out those dynamics, we've also just had conversations about being black, but also being LGBTQ, being black, but also being disabled. Um, we're going to start getting into the conversation about being black, but being a DACA recipient and how we oftentimes only associate DACA with the Latin community, which yep. first off, Latin people can be black. That's one. Right. And two, um, it's like the issue of immigration is not just a, a Latinx story and right. it's a story that needs to kind of be broadened and the conversation needs to be had on a wider scale because we have DACA recipients that are from every shade mm-hmm. uh, uh, of the rainbow. And, and unfortunately, we don't have that conversation. So kind of moving yeah. into how we how we have that conversation. Somebody emailed us recently saying, why don't you use... Um, why don't you uppercase black in all of your, in, in like, and some of our captions, sometimes we don't do it. So that's something that just never came to my mind. And so mm. just posting and having conversations about intellectually thought provoking conversations um, mm. that are just often not had, right? We uppercase, we uppercase Irish, we uppercase Hispanic, we uppercase all these mm. different things. And then it's just the, the dynamic is not the same for, for black. And so mm. why, why is that a thing? Because I'm not, I don't consider myself african-american i don't identify in that way i identify as a black person mm-hmm. um, in america and so i i want or lives in the united states and trying mm-hmm. to stop saying america <laughs> uh, so we 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 there's just so much and there's so much nuance and we want to get as deep as we possibly can into that nuance because mm-hmm. extreme media doesn't do it school doesn't do it and so how mm-hmm. do we figure out a way um to create platform to go into a nuanced concept about about race and and like you said the intersections and the margins it's just so easy to dismiss and 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 white dominant society wants it to be dismissed and so when creating something that's actively liberatory we have to not we have to be very careful that we don't forget those that's right because because we are not a monolith at all not at all (laughs) i think a lot of people tend to see us as oh you know black we just remember them together there's so many different, as you said, nuances and identities and intersections within that, um, even just through different regions. Yes. So there's so much to us. And so I think Absolutely. we're, you know, yeah. Important so I think that was an incredible way to end. We um, are not a monolith. We are extraordinarily nuanced. And if you want to learn more, uh, Black on Black Education will be giving you more. Teach for the Culture will be giving you more. Please follow, like, share, comment, all of that good stuff. Thank you so much. And we will hear from you next time. All right. Thank you for having me.